You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food, Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Giever. We're talking to Chloe Sorvino again about Raw Deal because I loved that book so much. Her book, Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat came out uh, from Simon & Schuster last fall, like around December 15th or something, right, Chloe? December 6th, yes, barely out a month and a half. Right. Uh, You've been a busy bee, though. Uh, And for people who aren't familiar with Chloe or didn't hear our first interview with her, or rather our second, but the first about this book, uh, Chloe Sorvino leads the coverage of food, drink, and agriculture at Forbes magazine. She works on the 30 Under 30 Food and Drink list and spearheaded at Forbes's Ag Tech Summits, with their signature events taking place in Salinas and in Indianapolis. She serves as a steward of the Forbes Union. Her work has been featured by NPR, the Los Angeles Times, and Fast Company. For the Financial Times, she shared a 2014 Best in Business Award in Government Reporting by the Society of American Business Editors and Writers for an investigation detailing the U.S. government's then-running price tag for its conflict in Afghanistan. It was titled The Cost of War, and it led uh, A1 when it ran on Monday, December 15, 2014. In case you want to go into the Wayback Machine and revisit our sad uh, history in Afghanistan. <laughs> anyway, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for joining me again. Oh, so happy to be here. Thank you so much. You have been an incredibly busy bee. I mean, it's so nice to see um, how uh, widespread your coverage. You got to go on Fresh Air, um, you know, just like all kinds of great shows and great um, reviews. You must be feeling really good about yourself right about now, huh? Yeah, you know, I'm feeling great. I'm just really happy to get this out there. It was such a labor of love. and For sure. You know, 5 a.m. writing every day in New York City through the pandemic and then working my full-time job. So I'm just really thrilled that it's out and it's been well-received. And, you know, food media, NPR, I've been, you know, I was just in Seattle, did an in-studio interview with the affiliate there, and I'm, you know, keeping it going. That's fantastic. I'm really pleased for you. And it's a great book. People, if you have not picked up your copy of Raw Deal, do it. Do it now. Even order it from Amazon. Not that I want to support them, but still. Anyway, uh, you're coming back because I wanted to talk about alt meat. I mean, I've had a, I've done a few shows about alternative meats, um, you know, sort of like umbrella shows, but not drilling down so specifically on the lab-grown cultured meat, which is what we're going to talk around today. Um, so you put a full chapter in your book about lab-grown meat or cultured meat, as it's called. Why, why did you make that decision? Yeah, you know, I didn't really even want to necessarily, but I had my third section in this book all around the alternative challengers from meat and a chicken company that's you know working on genetics in a different breed to bison and then to the alternative proteins that are on the market. And then, you know, I started writing this book in 2020 and in December mm-hmm. 2020, the Singapore government approved the first formulation for cultivated meat with 
a U.S. startup that, you know, had a subsidiary there, Eat Just, and it's good meat startup. So by the time that happened in December 2020, I, my book wasn't due, you know, I I sent it into the printers in 22. So by that point, I knew that it was going to be a big deal, whether we like it or not. And I wanted to be able to, you know, really show how this happened in the first place so you could kind of make that informed decision because it has been so top of mind for people and you know it's it's because it's been all over the media and it's also been raising billions of dollars in funding and all of these investors are clamoring to get in on these deals so you know I, I figured that because of that it needed to be discussed and I wanted to keep it in the framing of my book which is about equity and sustainability and environmentalism and really just how to fix this climate crisis and what is greenwashing, what isn't. <laughs> yeah, right. Why, why don't we give people a quick history of, of the lab meat option? Because um, that's it's been worked on for, I don't know, about I think about 15 years. I feel like I, I saw the first uh, stories about it, oh, maybe not 15, but 10 years ago, surely. Um, oh, yeah, what, I know it's been around. Yeah, and it's... and. I want you to talk about sort of how it has evolved and then um, what the process is for building cultured meat, because it is a process, right? Absolutely. And there are all these different startups right now that are trying to build it differently, which is why you also have a lot of the funding and a lot of copycats, a lot of the same types of research being used. So it's like a lot of resources kind of, you know, being used over and over again for the same types of things. But, you know, Cultivated meat, this concept has been around for decades. You know, there's been this long-standing really? joke in the cultivated meats, the lab-grown meat world, you know, that, you know, it's just about to happen. You know, it's just 20 <laughs> more years away from from really happening. Right. Um, but so it's been around. One of the biggest breakthroughs happened in 2013 when um, researchers in um, in the Netherlands really put together the first lab-grown burger and it was well, an enormous cost it, that one burger yeah it was like $300,000 or something yeah, insane and you yeah. know so that's now the researcher behind that is now you know the behind one of the bigger companies that's been raising a lot of money most of meat um but you know in the US there's upside foods previously called memphis meat right. there's josh Hesch's good 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 meat which is a subsidiary out of eat just and really you know to take a step back there have been researchers in, in the universities around the world looking at these sorts of how to make meat from cells, but there are all these different factors that go along with that. And particularly, you know, meat is such a specific taste and there's gristle, there's fat, there's lean parts, there's the protein. Um, there's all these different parts that have to go in to make this product that is so synonymous with how we eat and people really just have such strong opinions about it and feelings and nostalgia. Oh, yeah. and so, you know, it's taken a really long time and they've raised billions and billions of dollars to try to get this on the market as soon as possible. But it really all has, uh, there's a few issues with it and there's a few kind of bigger parts of the research. You know, there's the scaffolding, which is kind of what helps these cells grow and kind of form into these organ or meat like forms um there's also the serum which is one of these last holdouts for cheap um, ingredients and they really need to figure out a way to make these cells simulated and grow as quick as possible um, uh-huh. without using you know antibiotics or 
controversial things like fetal bovine serum, which is one of the most devastating types of products that really is out there. I don't really need to, you know, horrify your readers with what it yeah, is. Yeah, you do. Up. Oh, well, Tell okay. them what, you, it is, you know. what it is. I mean, this is why, I mean, this is like, uh, well, we'll go, we'll get into this at the end of the show, <laughs> but like sort of why people feel uneasy about products like this mm-hmm. is for mm-hmm. a very good reason. So yeah, have at it. Tell them what feel of uh, fetal bovine serum is all about because it's, it's you know it's, it's kind it's of disturbing. Highly, it's highly unethical, and it's one of the reasons that so many founders are trying to get all over this product. But it's been really hard to figure out a serum without this. And so fetal bovine serum is a byproduct of the dairy industry. It's re- really good at encouraging cells to grow in vitro, but it does that because it only comes from one way, which is slaughtering a pregnant cow and draining the fetus's blood. Mm-hmm. So not only is that gruesome, Ooh, also very yummy. expensive. There are some startups now that have officially gotten formulations approved. Good meat is one of them, you know, uh, that the serum free finally, but they still need a lot of these bionutrients. They're very unclear about what all these bionutrients are and the different um, ingredients that help these cells grow without this serum. And so there's a serum, there's a scaffolding because you need to have, you know, these cells growing on something to actually kind of be congealed together. And then you also have the other aspect of this, which is the bioreactor. So these products, this, these cells need to grow in a really hot environment where there's, you know, pressure that's making it grow quicker and quicker. And bioreactors are the machinery that makes that happen. But one of the issues and the kind of problems here that's been emerging, especially since 2020, when all of this really started building a lot of momentum, is that there's there's a huge wait list for these bioreactors. And right, there's only a finite number of bioreactors available to grow right. meat in, right? Right. And and the ones that are available are really, really small because they've been made for vaccines. And so the companies have been buying <laughs> them from like the biopharma industry. And so obviously that's also a problem because that's now taking away demand for creating new vaccines. And there's like so much demand to create COVID vaccines, other vaccines. And so now these startups are having to get on these really long wait lists, compete with the vaccine makers for these bioreactors, but then also wow. they decide if they have the capital, you know, if they're really going to be able to build a bioreactor that's bigger, or if they're going to have to have, you know, 20 or 30 bioreactors in one factory, because they can't get a massive, massive, massive bioreactor built for, you know, a hundred million dollars or what have you. Um, and so there's just a lot of questions right now. And there's a lot of different researchers at universities, but also these startups that are doing all different types of research. There are some startups that are only working on serum. There are some startups that are only working on scaffolding. You're seeing the bifurcation of this sector really coming into play as more and more capital flows into it. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you have hundreds of startups, billions of dollars in funding, and you know, not profitable products, barely any products even on the market, but we're about to really see it hit in the US. And we are that's gonna be a brave new world. Well, let's let's talk for a second about um sort of who is investing in this. And I mean, you keep saying billions and billions of dollars, and you're not exaggerating, but I'm wondering if you can sort of offer, you know, maybe not an absolutely accurate picture, but a but a close ballpark approximation of how much money in the last, say, five years has gone into mm-hmm. developing uh, cultured meat products, um, and which, as you just said, not one of which has re- reached the market, although the FDA just approved mm-hmm. uh, Uprise, I think it's, was, is it Rise Upside, Up? Oh, yeah. Upside, um, Upside Foods, Chicken Nuggets, it was I guess. No questions. 
letter that they they sent back. So it's not the final regulatory approval, but it was like the first major green light. Oh, right. Okay. So it's a really big deal. And we're going to really start seeing those products, that upside food product, probably hitting some some specialty grocers mm-hmm. in the next few months. Even by the end of this year, I'm, I'm expecting to see it and, and to be able to buy it. Have you um, tasted it yet? You know, I haven't, and we can go into that because yeah. I was, I've been offered it. I was, I, I could have gone to Singapore while writing this book. I didn't want the taste to actually cloud my reporting in any way. Uh-huh. And I think the taste is, is kind of separate too, because I really wanted to talk about the equity involved, the investors involved, the trend of frenzy to profit off this novel innovation. Right. Um, and some of the, the long-term issues I see with it. So you know, I was offered from all, pretty much all these top companies. I've interviewed with all the founders and all these CTOs and so mm-hmm. many of these different startups and most of these investors too, who, by the way, you, you asked that, you know, a lot of billionaires, almost all of the major investment funds, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been, you know, slapped on the back or kind of ribbed or, you know, look, talk to an investor and he's like salivating, you know, she's saying, oh, it's like the, the early days of the internet. And they really do see cultivated meat as one of the last frontiers for really? profits because it is, really? you know, meat is a, a huge industry. I mean, the food sure. industry is a $20 industry and meat is the biggest part of that. Beef alone is $70 billion. And so these are yeah. massive, massive market caps. And so these investors see, you know, if they could even get just like a tiny sliver of these market caps, they, they, they make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, at what cost and at what cost to the environment and at what cost to humanity, really? Yes. Um, it's, it's a lot of different investors, but it's the really big funds who have been funding a lot of other future food stuff. But then it's also the, the funds and the investors and the private entrepreneurs who cashed out. And, you know, across the food industry, you know, lab-grown meat is probably one of the most extreme best examples of this, but it's been happening across alternative protein, vertical farming, you name it. Um, the future of food is really seen as this, you know, last opportunity, this last frontier for investment, especially after, you know, so many Silicon Valley funds had invested in hardware or SaaS or cloud and made killer returns in three right. to five years. And then once they, those funds rolled over, they had a lot of money to plow into new companies and new startups and new sectors. Sure. And many of them looked at future food and cultivated meat specifically because of, you know, lots of visionary founders who are selling this story maybe more than they should have, you know, it, it attracted massive amounts of attention and massive amounts of funding. Mm-hmm. And now what you really have and what the point of the takeaway of my chapter in the book that I, I try to make clear is that, you know, it, there's now this huge amount of really powerful folks. I mean, it's a small amount of hands, but a huge amount of capital who really have a vested interest in seeing this technology go to market. Mm-hmm. I said earlier, kind of whether we like it or not, and you know, it's been selling in Singapore since December 2020 with Josh Chetrick's company, and they've been selling it at a loss. My my chapter goes into how the funding and the capital structure and the economics here are completely misaligned because these companies are now totally okay with selling these products at a loss, not having them be financially sustainable at all. Their investors are willing to do that to prove the market which is, you know, it's a kind of market manipulation, a manipulation of demand. They're, 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 they're creating demand for this product that may not actually have been there if it was actually at the price point that would make these products profitable or if they had to compete with like a, a grass-fed beef producer. You know, just a like grass-fed beef producer doesn't have the ability to, you know, 
have investors helping them not make profit and still succeed and not go bankrupt, you know? And so right. it fundamentally skewed the economics of the food industry overall. And so I can, I will continue to be looking for that. I'll, I'm expecting to see that more and more as these products continue to roll out across supermarkets across the world, particularly in the USO, you know, as they're again, trying to build a market, create as a supply, a sustainable, um, you know, sustainable customer base without actually having to make money off this. And so, you know, there's a lot there. Yeah, there's a lot there. And I, I mean, <clears throat> you've alluded to sort of equity issues, and I, I think that's worth uh, diving into for a second right here, because um, you, at one point you, you note the fact that a lot of the funding that is going into uh, exploring the opportunities of cultured meat, uh, that's funding that could be going towards other uh, projects that would, in fact, yield a, a better sort of sustainability profile, for lack of a better term. Um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, in, improved uh, conditions in slaughterhouses or, mm -hmm. or better, tra you know, better uh, treatment of wastewater, better treatment of byproduct, um, you know, dealing with mm -hmm. all of the gases that come out of those um, feedlots and, and slaughter plants as well. I mean, all of that stuff, like you could be funneling all that money into the conventional meat supply mm -hmm. and maintain the sort of the, the entire complex of farmers and ranchers who do that. Or talk about, you know, if that funding just a tiny bit, you know, if a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars of that tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of right. all of that funding that were to go to like a food hub or a CSA network in, in yeah. a big metropolitan area. I mean, that would make huge amounts of meaningful change really, really quickly. But right now there's just so much time and energy and resources flowing into this, you know, you know, a revolutionary technology, but one that is super unproven. Yeah. Still, still gonna have to create a market with customers who might be a little iffy on this. And <laughs> You know, at the end of the day, there's 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 so there's a lot of other accessibility issues. I'd love to go into it with you, honestly. Well, we we might get there, but um, you know, what we're going to do right now is take a short break, um, and then we'll be right back with Chloe Sorvino to talk more about uh, cultured meat because this is this is a really complex topic. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Okay, so <clears throat> we're talking cultured meat. So the venture capitalism of, you know, the venture capitalists of the world have united, coalesced around this. And then also companies, existing companies like Tyson, Purdue have also invested quite heavily in cultured mm -hmm. meat. Isn't that true? Mm -hmm. JBS did a $100 million investment. All of the major meat packers 
a, a lot of them anyway, are are looking at this. Many of them have already invested in some of these startups. Many of them invest in multiple of the startups. Mm. And, you know, I think there is this kind of awkward elephant in the room for many of these founders. And I talked to several of them about it, um, including Mark Post, who was that, you know, that original burger guy in, in, um, in the Netherlands, who put right. out that first one, who's now doing most of me. You know, there's still a need for the investors in these startups to profit to get their returns that's on a, a three to five year timeline and right. so well we're going to be coming up on that soon they're going to want to see money for what they put in however you know there's how should i say this there's there's this there's there's an elephant in the room because many of these startups only see their way out and their way to get their investors returns by getting acquired by these meat packers, by these companies oh. that have this vested interest in the status quo. And so many of the startups and the founders and the investors, you know, played this song and dance. They're not necessarily that, you know, forward about talking about factory farming and why that's a problem. And that's because they're trying to keep the doors open, keep the options open for one day being acquired by a Tyson or being acquired by a JBS and having, you know, their little startup fit quite neatly into that overall supply chain. And, you know, many of these founders are saying that they want to see, you know, cultivated meat completely take over meat. But then at the end of the day, there are many players and many um, institutions already working very deep in these supply chains that will have a vested interest in maintaining the overall meat status quo, but then also keeping this as like this luxury product they're not really seeing it as something that's going to be accessible to the masses well that 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 is the big issue because i mean mm -hmm. we mentioned earlier that the that the the first burger cost you know well over several hundred thousand dollars to produce and yes uh the price has come way way down but it is still uh not something that would be um say an alternative for a family on SNAP benefits, for example, um, they're not going to be buying the lab-grown meat because it's cheaper, right? They're still going to be buying low-cost uh, factory-farmed meat. Right. Well, you know, I mean, they're keeping these prices, you know, at, at somewhat, you know, normal prices. But, you know, at a certain point, these startups are going to need to make money on these products. Sure. And many of the investors that have been funding this 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 work, this technology, this, this innovation, um, have actually unfortunately been really only funding the startups that are saying that they're going to be creating products for that upper echelon, that banker class, the high end steakhouse market. And, you know, that's just a huge red flag for me because mm -hmm. this is something that actually is potentially revolutionary. It actually could create accessibility and, you know, help to solve, so these intractable issues like 40 million Americans and 11 to 15 million children being hungry annually. Right. And right now the folks who want to profit on this and folks who have a vested interest in seeing this come to the market really want to see it be a luxury product. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, they're also then, you know, commodifying and, you know, taking ownership of the intellectual property of these formulations where, you know, meat, you know, you can talk about breed, you know, the genetics, all that, but really meat is a natural good. And it is something that doesn't need, you know, a patent to protect you from. <laughs> and so, you know, we just, it's, we're, we're having people really trying to own the future of meat full stop. 
Right. And right. Very interesting. I mean, that's a whole separate issue right there is who owns the intellectual property of this product. And each and every formulation from different country from different companies will be different, right? How are they going to know? How are they going to be and able how to are identify they that? dictate this market in the future? Right. And these it's only going to be a small amount of companies that end up, you know, beating it all. There's hundreds of these startups right now, but eventually there's going to be no race to the bottom. There's going to be a lot of um, M and A. There's going to be acquisitions. There's going to be different companies getting rolled up or swallowed up or going bankrupt. It's kind of what's happening sure. already in the alternative protein market broadly with plant-based meats. You know, there has been this bifurcation of winners and losers, and there's been a lot of copycats getting rolled up together because they're not really doing much and their investors don't want to keep giving them money. And, right. you know, the spigot was turned off. And so now there's been a lot of bankruptcies, a lot of companies just kind of shuddering and the big ones are still really struggling too. So very interesting to the economics here that, you know, people who just talk about, that's why I didn't want to talk about just the taste, you know? Right. Um, and also, aside from that, I also will say, since, you know, we're having a real interview here, I also didn't want to give any of these startups um, my signature on an NDA, because I would have had to have tasted these products with an NDA. And as a journalist, I just don't make a point of doing that. I see. Very interesting. Um, I want to go back a little bit to the technology involved, because one of the things you mentioned is that antibiotics are necessary Um in culturing meat. And, and can you explain why we would need antibiotics in, uh, you know, cultured cell growth? Is that, what is that for? There's E. coli and salmonella in, in the uh, fetal bovine serum? Yeah, you know, there's, there's just a lot of risk. You're still making food. There's mm-hmm. deep risk of foodborne illnesses like salmonella and E. coli in the cells themselves, especially in the many of these like early stage prototypes and some of the early stage you know, research. And so many of these startups right now are using a fair amount of antibiotics just to make sure they're not, you know, turning their own plants. You know, they talk about how they're going to be so much better than factory farming, which has a, such an over-reliance on the use of antibiotics. When at the same time, it's actually been very hard for many of these startups to actually go the distance and and make meaningful change beyond things like, you know, antibiotic use. Uh, Yeah, that's what it sounds like. I mean, so, I mean, so that, that actually begs the question is like, how is the nutritional composition of, of cultured meat as compared to real meat? I mean, you know, people like to say meat is bad, 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 but in fact, it's a nutritional powerhouse Mm -hmm. and um, bioavailable protein source out there. Absolutely. So how is the is the nutritional composition in lab-grown meat similar or comparable in its value to um, the real deal? Yeah, I mean, so we haven't seen m- many of these nutritional labels yet from the ones we have. Mm-hmm. I'll take good meat in Singapore, for example. It's around 75% lab-derived chicken cells and then 25%, you know, plant protein, which is like the scaffolding that they're using kind of a combination of believe a pea protein or some soy, and, but, you know, there's, these are real cells. These are real chicken cells. These aren't real meat cells. However, there's a lot of food, man, food flavor science and manufacturing and food engineering that has to go into still making these products actually behave like we're used to, to be able right. to be cooked. Like we're able to cook a chicken breast in a, a kitchen. Um, and, there's there's a lot that has to be put into these products, additives, different different emulsifiers, different gums to make sure they actually are doing what they need to do. And so we will see how that continues to happen. And we will see how consumers 
push back on the, some of these first generation products that are about to be coming out because I'm expecting them to be somewhat ultra processed. I was just going to say, like, if you're <laughs> if you're trying to get your diet back down to like a very sort of basic level of, you know, real foods, <laughs> this is definitely not going to fill that bill. And then there's there's um, you know, there's also the issue of how much energy is required just mm -hmm. to run the bioreactors and probably other processes. Um, so have you been able to um, uh, sort of make a comparison between the energy use uh, required in, say, growing a barn full of chickens and then slaughtering it um, as, a pair, as compared to growing the equivalent amount of lab-grown meat? I mean, that's, I'm sure that's a pretty tough. Yeah, no, there's been several life cycle assessments out there and, you know, they're not perfect because there are, you know, these plants are getting better every day, I will say, but um, there were several and several I cited in the book. Um, some of them find that if lab grown meat factories don't use alternative energy sources, if they use traditional energy sources at scale, they would be worse actually than industrial meat production, which is crazy. And <laughs> oh another God. thing I'll say too, which is one of the worst and most mind-blowing parts of some of this reporting, particularly for this chapter, was I talked to so many of these founders. And unfortunately, it seems like many of these founders, when they're making these plants, they're really not taking that renewable energy question into consideration. Many of them have told me that they're actually just kind of unfortunately banking on the federal government to electrify the grid, which is a goal by 2030, but that obviously is a super far out goal. Yeah. Maybe they'll hit it. Maybe they won't hit it. Also that electrification of the energy grid is going to be need to, you know, support metropolitan areas, not exactly for the private sector to be kind of commandeering. Right. And so I think we're going to really see a lot of that continue to shake out as more of these plants get bigger and bigger. Right now in the U.S., Upside Foods has a pilot plant in a residential, you know, a neighborhood um, that you know we can you can walk by in Silicon Valley. Um, but it's quite quite small still. Um, but these plants can can get quite big. Some of them will have you know between five hundred million to a billion dollars of investment just put into one plant alone, wow. which is huge. And so it's a lot of money, a lot of money. But even before you have to then deal with the energy resources. Right. And so, you know, I'm really hoping that many of these founders like take this into consideration more and more. But from right now, lab meat and even some of the alternative proteins like the, the fungi, my mycelium guys, most of them are banking on the electrification of the grid. Very interesting. A problem. Yeah, that is a problem because, you know, do we all really want to pay for that? Right. So then <laughs> our taxpayers' jobs to, you know, support lab-grown meat yeah. and, and their energy use, their, over, their large amount of energy use. Yeah, I mean, like really an almost sort of criminal amount of <laughs> of energy use currently. But you did mention that like if we went, if there was a more of an alternative energy source, I guess that would be wind and solar. Mm -hmm. I mean, but even that mm -hmm. seems like it could be out, like the, the, the requirements of a bioreactor and the other elements that go into creating cultured meat uh, seems to me could easily outstrip uh, the production of... Um, you know, of alternative energy use and not allow for other people to use it Absolutely. as in a municipality, right? Yeah, so. I'm not, I would love to see actual substantial investment from these producers in addressing their energy consumption because it's, it's no joke. Yeah, really. Um, the other thing that you mentioned was, and here's another aspect of the energy use is 3D printing mm -hmm. their meat. Can you talk a little bit about that process? 
Yeah. So there are different types of startups that are trying to, there are hundreds of these startups and they're trying to figure out the best way to produce lab grown meat at scale, the most efficiently, the most quickly as possible. One of the ways that some stars were trying to do this is through 3D printing. And so I, I spoke with a company that, you know, it ties in with the book and the broader theme of the book because it's backed by one of the billionaires that is the largest contract manufacturer in the world and has supplied McDonald's with its burgers for years and also does impossible Whoppers and the whole thing. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, they've invested in this company because it's potentially going to be one of the future contract manufacturers of the world that's going to be maybe, you know, putting out meat for a lot of different companies. And I found that parallel to be very interesting. Um, but, you know, the 3D printing, you essentially use like different inks, right? You know, like a fat ink, you have a protein ink. Yeah, you have a I thought that was ink. fascinating. You know, you, there are these videos, and like, you can even watch this yourself. You know, you can see these kind of, you know, stringy textures coming out of these inks being you know, it looks like a Play-Doh, um, yeah. a silly putty, a uh, silly string, you know, and Amazing. that's why there's just like a long way for a lot of this to go still. But, you know, 3D printing is one of the, one of the technologies that is trying to be used to get that to scale quicker and to build machinery out that, you know, could even potentially be put in a grocery store like a Whole Foods so that Whole Foods could make its own they could print their own steaks correct in in theory i mean this is still pretty theoretical and the products really aren't there for the consumer market yet but it is one of the more exciting technologies for some investors it's i mean to me it's just and again it's a technology that requires enormous energy inputs Mm -hmm. um and plus you have to you know figure out i don't know what the energy costs are in producing um, the various components that go into meat, whether it's fat, muscle cells, uh, connective tissue, uh, you know, what other fibers go into meat? I don't know. I mean, you know, five years of butcher, but uh, I can't tell you everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I want to talk a little bit more because we're going to have to close in a, in a little bit. But um, how, how is the public viewing this? What's your what's your sense of that? I mean, because the plant based meat substitutes uh, seem to be plateauing in sales. Mm-hmm. They're um, plateauing, if not completely declining. I mean, some yeah. of the ones are really losing, you know, down double digits even. Um, I think that's a combination of some of these products coming out a little too early, not really being ready for the consumer market, which is mm-hmm. what you might also be seeing some of the cultivated meats that are about to hit the market. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it really kind of there's a lot of different groups here that are excited about this meat, but then also there are a lot of folks that really are not, um, you know, on the one hand, you have like the whole foods, like the, the, you know, Atlas waters of the world, um, kind of really eschewing this and pushing back on it. Um, while at the same time, then you have a lot of these kind of techno optimists or, um, you know, folks who are really big animal advocates, um, folks who are excited about trying to potentially rewild some of the land that industrial meat has been using, they're super excited about this. And while, you know, I, I don't judge whether anyone likes or dislikes, you know, um, I personally wonder how it's going to affect our culinary future and, and, and how it will also affect like our gut health and, and our, our, our public health. And I think there's just a lot of long-term questions still with this that, <laughs> you know, I, I haven't seen really answered yet. Well, I, I mean, it's clearly not a product that the vegetarian community is going to embrace, right? 
vegetarians no, but and I vegans do are not going to eat this. I see a lot of the, you know, the rectarians, some of these like, not exactly vegans, but I, I even hear about some vegans who actually want to try some. So it depends, you know. Um, even though it's made with cultured meat cells. There are some vegans, I think, who are vegans because of the animal welfare alone and just that full stop. And so I think there mm-hmm. are some folks there that are still interested in trying cultivated meat. Maybe they won't be eating meat every day. Maybe they don't, you know, maybe they're not going to like the product. But I have heard that there are, you know, vegetarian-leaning folks, vegan-leaning folks who are interested. Huh. I mean, that makes, I mean, it sort of makes sense for the plant-based uh, products, but I mean, this, uh, that's a pretty, that's a pretty tough stretch for me, but I guess, as you say, if it's, if it's all about your animal welfare concerns, um, and not about your health or whatever other objections you might have to eating flesh, um, you know, <laughs> I, I guess you're going to go for it. I mean, to me, like the whole business of it, even including the, um, the plant base, it's like, if you're not interested in eating meat, why are you interested in eating a meat substitute? Like why, Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? It's like, Mm -hmm. why are you going in that direction, period? I mean, that's what makes it so interesting to me that it is, uh, has attracted so much investment money um, when I really feel like the, they didn't maybe do quite enough focus groups on on who was really going to buy this product. Um, no. especially at the luxury, at the luxury price point, um, you know, if it becomes something that you can, you know, feed to prisoners and, uh, school children and, you know, like pink slime, um, you know, well then have at it. Right. But it's not going to be that not for right. a long and time. Also, anyway. Again, then it's also like this question of like privilege and accessibility issues. Like why should we be testing out? You know, I'm all for this technology being more accessible and, and getting to the masses in the book. I even talk about it, you know, is potentially fitting in with like a public food sector but also it's like why should we be testing out food like that on inmates or or our children school public school children or nursing homes or 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 public hospitals right um it really gets it to some of these like big societal questions yes it does (laughs) it most definitely does i mean i i personally wouldn't want to see this going into the school system not until there's been some longitudinal studies that show real long-term studies right that show what you know what what if any impact it has on your health uh, as opposed to consuming you know whatever a chicken breast or you know a pork chop i don't know i mean unfortunately uh from the uh, fda's inquiry into heme with impossible foods i don't think we're going to be getting much because they were able to get off the hook without actually doing long-term studies for cancer Mm -hmm. or other big big sorts of big actual issues well as we have learned in recent weeks uh the whole food (laughs) food section of the food and drug (laughs) agency uh has not been doing its job for more than a a little while so Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully that will be changing soon i you know to sort of finish up this discussion do you think you know, like uh, one of the things that I thought about, like when I wrote my book about the meat industry, you were, you know, we saw a huge growth of uh, the meat, conventional meat industry in uh, places like India and China. Mm-hmm. And, um, and those countries are now wealthy enough. And many of the countries that had more of a plant-based diet, Vietnam, all through Southeast Asia and so on, um, you know, now they, they're, they're wealthy enough to be able to buy meat and they want to buy meat and they do buy meat. And uh, are we going to, you know, this is another case where, you know, the, the climate change um, 
proclivities of the of the developed world having a huge impact on the on the world that is currently developing and and so we're saying to these people well you shouldn't really eat meat because it's really bad for the environment you know and they're saying what what are you talking about you know i finally have enough money to eat meat once a day what are you saying so i mean how, right. that you know there's sort of all of that equity part of it as well you know if we're going to look at it as some sort of panacea to uh you know uh, eliminate the the environmental impacts of animal agriculture uh how are we going to sell that that program to nations that are only just beginning to be able to uh nourish themselves uh in a way that you may or may not agree with but which they certainly have the right to do yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why in the beginning of the book around the meat stuff, I really, I talk about how there's this voracious demand for these meat packers to keep exporting for that reason, because they see the rising wealth yeah. as as a way for them to continue to make returns and to continue to grow global meat demand and grow global meat consumption, which is exactly what we have to not do to already face the irreversible damage that the meat industry has caused to our climate. Right. So, you know, big problems there but then also you get to this part where there are generations of histories in many of these countries of, of vegetarianism or pastoralism mm-hmm. um, and you, we're gonna see how these these many different so many different cultures on the country i mean the world it's they will i i, I think every culture will, will face this every society every community will face this differently will decide differently based on you know their own belief systems and, and everything around them. I will say that there is in some parts of the developing world, the global South that are embracing this. And some many of the state funds, you know, in, in, in Middle East, for example, have actually been investing a huge amount of money into these technologies because they see it as a way to create food sovereignty for mm-hmm. their population. And so, you know, you're going to see that food insecurity, food sovereignty question coming up. But then I think right. there's also going to be major cultural questions that will keep arising in every single place where these products are going. Yeah. Well, it's Chloe, we're going to drop it there, but thank you so much. I mean, what an interesting topic. I mean, you know, we just filled 40 minutes talking about one chapter in your book. I mean, <laughs> there is a lot here to, to learn and understand. Uh, I think before we all jump uh, feet first into uh, embracing the alt meat uh, industry. But anyway, thank you so, so much for uh, joining me today. We'll be in touch very soon, I'm sure. Uh, thanks to my sponsor, as always. And uh, we'll see you next week, folks. Appreciate you tuning in. Bye for now. What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.